Well, and two weeks ago, as we started this, we decided that we would do this in a two-sermon, two-teaching type of way. So we took half of, of the, the first section of the first chapter, and today we're going we're gonna to carry that on. We're going to do a little bit of review and then go on. But James, as he writes this to the church at large, decides to handle the single, single greatest problem that we all face in Christianity, and it's the problem of just trials. trials. And it's interesting how he decides to jump, jump right in and handle that right right up front in chapter 1. So we're going to pick it up in verse 2 by way of review. And in verse 2 it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. By the way, everybody's at James now, right? Yes. Okay. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. <clears throat> Here's what James says. James tells us that we are to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. That tells us that trials are going to be a given in the life of the believer. Now, am I the only person who's ever noticed that, that life comes with trials? Have you noticed that being a believer did not solve all of your problems? Yes. Yes. So, so life comes with trials. The next thing that we learn, since he says there's going to be trials in life, that this is not heaven. Have you come to that conclusion yet? And so there's really no reason to be mad at God when difficulty comes because God's already told us that trials are going to come. This isn't heaven. One day we'll be in heaven. Then there'll be no problems. Now, we also, in our last teaching, we, we, as we discussed through, we said that we're all in one of three places. We're either right now in the midst of a great trial and we're going through a very difficult time and, and that was certainly some of us and then some of us weren't in that place but we're in a place where we've just come through a very difficult trial and uh, things are pretty good at this point. And uh, for those who aren't either in a trial or just after a trial, here's where you're at. You are just before a trial. Does that encourage you? Well, good. So verse 3 says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In our last study, we saw that spiritual maturity, according to James, is defined in one word, and that word is endurance. Just simply the word endurance. Sometimes in the Christian world, we think that spiritual maturity has to do with Bible knowledge, and certainly that's part of it. It has to do with the way that we look and talk and some of the things that we do. But James brings it all down to one thing. He says it really comes down to endurance. And says that's really the litmus test of where you are spiritually. Verse 5, since we're going to face trials, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom. Now underline wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So in the midst of our trials, James tells us that we need to ask God for wisdom. And I don't know how it is for you, but in the midst of my trials, typically I ask for relief, not wisdom. And if I want wisdom, it's usually the wisdom so I can get the relief to get out of the trial. Now, would I be alone in this? Okay. So we, we, we're to ask for, for wisdom. Now, as we do this today, and, and last time we discovered that wisdom is just simply seeing and responding to life's trials from God's perspective. Now, as we get into this today, we've entitled this, we've titled this Surviving Trials, or How to Survive Trials 101. This week, as we were putting this together, as I was wrestling with this teaching, you have to know this, this caused me a little bit of angst, and here, here's why. Because what I'm going to share with you today is so incredibly basic. It's so incredibly fundamental, and yet it's so key if we're going to survive our trials. But I was afraid to even share this with you because I know that when you come to Calvary Chapel, you, you're kind of here for the stuff, right? You're here for the meat of the word. You want to go deep. And, and yet I'm going to tell you today that what I'm going to share with you is just very bottom line 
basic, not deep. Okay? All right, so you're still with me. All right, so we're going to pick it up today in verse 6. That's where we left off last time. We pick it up in verse 6 where the plot thickens, and it says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he shall receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says that faith and coming to God is the key. But James realizes that there are some people who are, when life is good, they are, praise God, I love you. But when things are bad, now they are mad at God. Ever met anybody like that? And James says it like this. Now, in verse 8, he says, he describes this one. He says, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I like looking at different translations of the Bible. One of my favorites is called the literal translation, where it, it, it doesn't try to package it in wording that we understand. It just tells you literally what's being said. In the literal translation, verse 8 reads like this. Notice there in your outline, he says, a two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. And here's what he's saying. Some people, it's almost like there are two people. When things are good, they're this kind of person, but when things are bad, they're this kind of person. They're kind of like this spiritual Mr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, and they're like two different, I don't know, the words are not coming out of this mouth today. They're like coming out, I'm like, that's not the word, bring it back. But, but they're like two different people living in one body. And depending on what their circumstances are in that given day, that's the person that you're going to meet. And James says that if you and I are going to survive our trials, we have to come to the place where as we approach God, we say, God, simply, I'm not going to be that double-minded, two-souled person. I'm going to be somebody who just says, God, whatever happens, whatever it is that you reveal to me, I want you to know that right up front, I'm in. I'm in. I'm not coming to you to bargain with you. I'm not saying, God, if you heal me of this, if you save this relationship, if you bail me out of this financial situation, I will serve you as a missionary. I'm not bargaining like that, God. But here's what I'm doing. I'm coming to you and I'm saying, God, I'm in and I need some input. And God says, if you will come in that way, he will give the wisdom that you need. So here's the first thing that we notice, and you want to write this down. If I'm going to survive a trial, the first thing that I'm going to need is I'm I'm going to need to have what we're going to call a decided heart, a decided heart. The decided heart is simply the heart that says, no matter what, God, I want you to know I'm in, come what may, I am in. There's not going to be any back and forth. Now, also notice verse 7. He says, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Here's what he's saying. There are those who would come to God, they want to ask God for wisdom because they want to kind of get an opinion. I want to, I want to know what you think, God, and I'm going to put that in my list of options so that I can consider whether I want to do what you want me to do, but I'm probably going to get some other opinions. Here's what he's saying. You want to write this down, that God's will is not for the curious. It's only for the decided. God does not reveal his will to the curious, but only to those who are decided. Does that make sense? Now, he carries on the thought in verse 9. I'm going to read it in my translation, then I'm going to come back and unpack it. But in verse 9, he says, but the brother of my translation says, humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. 
and the rich man is to glory in, in my translation it says his humiliation. Because like a flowering grass, he will pass away. For the, sun rises, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, in this, we kind of miss something that's going on here because as you read it in our translations in the English, typically we think that James has changed, changed subjects. He's really just carrying on the thought. What you might want to know is James is probably the only book in the New Testament that most Bible scholars believe when it was originally written was written in Hebrew. And yet when it became part of the church, it was translated into Greek. And then from Greek, it's translated into English. So we might be uh, two, two languages away from the original. But, but here's the intent of what he's saying. Uh, again, I like to go back to the literal translation. Here, here's what it says there in your outline. It says... Let the brother who is low. Now, underline the word low. Now, again, in my translation, it says of humble circumstances. He says, let the brother who is low, and that's all the word means is just low. And there's the Greek word. It's actually going to be a play on words. Let the one who is low rejoice in his exaltation. And the rich man in his becoming low. Uh, my translation says humiliation, but, but the literal word is just low. And then you'll see that there's the Greek word, telepianosis. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Because as a flower of grass, he shall pass away. So here's what's going on. James is using some plays on words. He's using some things that are very familiar to the readers, but they translate kind of awkwardly into the English. What he is saying is when he says, let the brother who is low rejoice in his exaltation, he's saying, here's a guy who's kind of going through life. All of a sudden, he's now made low. He's going through a trial. The word can also be translated as cast down. So here's somebody going along. All of a sudden, whammo, now they are low. They've kind of hit rock bottom. He says that person needs to rejoice in their exaltation or their lifting up. Now, Now, why is that so important? Somebody's going through a trial. James says, right now, you're low. You're going through this, but I want you to know something. You can rejoice because there's going to be a day when this trial comes to an end, and there's going to be a better day. So you can rejoice in the fact that this trial that you are facing is not forever. So you can rejoice in the exultation that there's going to be a better day. With me so far? Then he says, but but now some of you, you're rich. Now, that's an interesting word also. I didn't put on your outline, but it just means abundant, just abundant. Life is going along. You're doing great. Things are really clicking along. It's all coming together. He says, you're doing great. He says, but I want you to know you need to be careful. You need to understand that there's going to come a time that although life is great right now, there's going to come a day when you're going to find yourself low, just like the guy who's currently low. And, and that's true. It's true. Every one of us who's going through a good time right now, we have to understand that there's going to come a time when we're going to face a trial, and what's so wonderful right now could be turned into a time when we would just be described as low. With me so far? So here's the illustration he uses. He says, so you're blossoming right now, you're growing, you're developing, and it's all wonderful. You're like that flower that's kind of coming up in the morning, and the, you know, it's just blooming and blossoming, and everything's so wonderful and beautiful, and things are just really happening. But then all of a sudden, in the midst of that, the sun comes up. And as the sun comes up, it brings its heat, it brings the scorching wind. And while you started off so well, now all of a sudden, you find yourself withering. You're going through a trial. And what was so beautiful right here, all of a sudden, begins to wither and unravel and fall apart. 
So if you're going through a great time, you need to know that that can possibly happen. If you're going through a difficult time, just know it's not the end. If you're going through a great time, know that it's probably not always going to be just like that. With me so far? Now, why does he say that? James knows that there are two lies that we tell, each, we, that we tell ourselves. And the lies are simply this. First of all, when things are good, we think that things will always be good. And when, because we believe that lie that we tell ourselves, we make irrational decisions. When things are good, we buy more house than we could possibly afford. We mortgage our house more than we could because after all, things are going to be good. And I know you didn't do that, but, but some people did. And so we, we believe that lie because things are good and they're always going to be good. But then something happens. Two years goes by and behold, behold, what happens? Things are no longer good. And now we find ourselves in a trial. And it's in that time of trial that we begin to lie to ourselves with the second lie, which is simply things are bad, then that means that things will always be bad. And they're lies that we tell ourselves. And James says it's just like this. Just know, if you're going through it, you hang on, you rejoice, because there's going to come a day when this trial is going to come to an end. If right now you're being blessed and things are abundant, just hang on, because there could come a day when what is so beautiful might also go through that storm, and you might find that withering away. Make sense? Okay. Now, verse 12, he comes right back into it, and he says, Blessed is a man who perseveres, underline perseveres, under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who, underline, love him. Now here's what he's saying. He is saying that God values a persevering and an enduring faith so much that sometimes he will allow difficulty to come into our lives just so that we can experience that enduring and that persevering faith and so that he can see what's really going on inside of us. So he brings us to the place in those times of trials where he takes us from the faith or removes us from the faith that just says, what have you done for me lately? What I've noticed as a believer, just walking through life just like the rest of us, is I've noticed that when I'm around people who have gone through incredible trials, difficult times, and they've done that, walking with the Lord, what I find is after that trial, somehow in the midst of that trial, God has taken that trial and he has somehow created, brought about so much depth in their lives that when you meet people who've been through those difficult experiences, you're humbled by what they've walked through and how they've walked with God and the depth that God has brought out of their lives. Do you know anybody like that? One of the guys who's somewhat of a mentor to me, his name is John Corson. John Corson's one of the original Calvary guys, and um, he's a national Bible teacher, sought after for, to speak at seminars and conferences, and just, just a guy who has incredible wisdom and, and quite a bit of depth. And when you listen to him, you see the books that he's read, or the books that he's written, the, the teachings, you'd think, gee, your life has always been so great. How did you get so much depth in your life? Well, it's an interesting thing. In his book, A Future and a Hope, uh, he, sh- he shares just a couple of paragraphs about his story. Can I, can I read the paragraphs? I mean, what are you going to say, right? So, so here, here's what he says. He says, On our way to a day of skiing at Mount Bachelor in the spring of 1982, I told my wife, Terry, a joke. We laughed, and suddenly, and suddenly our car hit ice, spun around, and hit a redwood tree. 
my beautiful wife died right next to me. We were both 29. The next thing I remember is crawling down Highway 42, about a half a mile from the wreck, on my hands and knees. Being very early morning, no cars were on the road. The first car that came stopped, and the driver called an ambulance. I don't remember anything after that until I was in the ambulance. How's my wife, I asked. She's doing fine, said the ambulance attendant. No, I said, she's in heaven. You're right, he said. She's not with us any longer. At that moment, something happened to me that had only happened a few times in my life. I heard what seemed to be an audible voice speaking to me a verse I had never heard. I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not evil, to bring to you a glorious end. After that, I drifted into unconsciousness. In the hospital, the voice on the other end of the phone was Chuck Smith saying, John, I have one thing to share with you. God would say, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not evil, to bring you to a glorious end. The very verse I had heard in the ambulance was now being spoken into my ear by my pastor. Here's what I've learned in life. I have learned that the people who would be people that we would consider to have great depth in their relationship with God, in their walk with God, are people who have been through some of the most incredibly difficult trials. And there's a depth. I don't know how you respond to that, but I turn to God and I read that and I say, God, I'm good being shallow. If that's what it takes to make me deep, I'm good being shallow. But here's the thing I've learned with, about God. That's not our choice. And when he chooses to take us deeper, it's usually through the process of a very painful trial. My hope is that's not my trial and hopefully not our trial, but that was his trial. And as you see, as he comes out on the other side, it's a man of great depth, a man of great faith. Well, verse 12 tells us, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. James tells us that there's a special reward for those who persevere under trial. It's as if God says, in a time of difficulty, you persevered when others would turn. You hung in there and you loved me in a unique way in a time where I wasn't doing what it is that you wanted me to do. But you hung in there. And here's what he says. He says at the very end of that verse, the end of verse 12, he says, the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown comes to those, the reward comes to those who love him. How does he know? How do we know? How is that love shown? That love is shown by our perseverance. That's what he says. The love is revealed in the time that we persevere. Does that make sense? And every one of us are going to go through trials. But today, as we do this, I I, I wanted to just talk uh, about what do we do in the trial. Well, the first thing that we looked at was simply we need to have that decided heart. And then once we have that decided heart, I believe that we need to go to God and we need to say, God, I have a decided heart, and here's what I'm asking, and we simply need to ask for wisdom. Go ahead and write that down. Now, as I read this, verse 5, it just says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
And so when I ask for wisdom, I believe that part of asking for wisdom is simply asking God, what kind of faith does he want me to exercise in this trial? And as I've looked at faith, I've come to realize that there's three kinds of faith. The first kind of faith that God sometimes calls us to exercise is just simply what we would call survival faith. Go ahead and write that down. Now, survival faith, probably the best illustration in the Bible was just the the nation of Israel in the wilderness. God takes them out of Egypt, takes them to the desert. They cannot provide for themselves. They, They have no ability to make it happen. And so God gives them manna every single day. He gives them just enough to survive, enough for the day. Not enough for tomorrow, not enough for next week, but just enough for today. Survival faith. Now, here's what I've learned. God, many times brings people to the place through a season where he calls them just to trust him and what would only be described as survival faith. Just trust me. And it's in that time that we see him show up. It's groceries on the front porch when there's no food in the refrigerator. It's, it's little ways that he shows up. Now let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here who's ever been through a season that you would describe as survival faith? Absolutely. Now, here's the thing. We don't want to live there, do we? It's a season that we go through. But it's something that sometimes God asks us to walk through. And we just call that survival faith. Well, another type of faith that God calls us sometimes to walk through is called an enduring faith. Go ahead and write that down. An enduring faith. Probably... In the New Testament, the best description of this, you'll recall that the Apostle Paul is a man that God is using greatly, and yet the Apostle Paul is going blind, and the Apostle Paul has this eye disease. He's been used by God to heal other people. He's teaching, he's preaching, but he has this terrible eye disease that that historians, as they describe it, describe it as this pussy, oozing eye ailment where he would get up to speak, and it would be probably the best description um, would be like having Vaseline caked on somebody's eyes and they're kind of dripping. So there's Paul standing up there preaching, telling people about God's great power and God's love for them. And here he is dripping from his eyes. And so Paul says, God, I've got this eye situation. I'm telling people about how good you are and how great you are and why they should follow you. I think I'd be more effective if I stood up to talk about your greatness. Pus wasn't oozing out of my eyes in front of the whole congregation. Would you agree? Good. So, so Paul says, so here's what I did. There on your outline, he says, so I implored the Lord three times. Now that means that on three separate occasions, Paul took some time to, I, I would suggest, to pray and fast and seek God on this. So I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, I think I'd be more effective. And God says, no, Paul, I think you'd be arrogant. So I'm going to leave this in your life. I'm going to leave it in your life because my grace is sufficient to which Paul then evidences, um, he evidences his enduring faith and also he evidences a decided heart. And I didn't put the rest of the verse on your outline, but Paul just says, okay, if I can't boast in the fact that you've healed me, I'm going to boast in my weakness and I'm going to tell everybody how great you are even though I have pus oozing out of my eyes. He says, so I'm going to boast in the fact that I'm weak so that nobody can say, Paul, it was your great ability. They have to say it was the Lord. But for Paul, God says, I'm not going to heal you, Paul. So Paul was called to walk in enduring faith. Does that make sense? 
Probably in the Old Testament, one of the best-known stories in the Bible is the story of Job. You know the story. Job loses his children. He loses his family. He loses his, his job. He loses his wealth. He loses everything that he owns. The only thing that God leaves Job in his life is a cranky wife. It's all God leaves him. It's in the Bible. And, and so God takes everything away. Now, interesting, Job, in the midst of this ordeal that most Bible scholars believe lasted about two years, loses his kids, loses his business, loses his wealth, everything, and, and just has his wife. In the midst of this ordeal, Job reveals that he has a decided heart. Notice what he says there in your outline. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now, Job's not given any explanation He's just called at that time to walk in what you and I would call an enduring faith. Job, there's nothing you can do to fix your situation. There's no way to fix it. You can't improve it. In this situation, you just have to endure it. So for Job, he can't improve it. The Apostle Paul can't improve his situation. So in this case, it's just enduring faith. That's all it is. Sometimes God calls us to walk through a time of enduring faith. And yet, there is another type of faith beyond survival faith and beyond, beyond enduring faith. And it's the faith that I believe that God mostly cause, calls us to walk in. And we're going to call that faith conquering faith. Go ahead and write that down. You'll recall the story. Jesus has empowered the disciples. He's called them to go. He's commissioned them to go and heal. He's commissioned them to cast out demons. He's called them to go and preach. And so they're out doing that. And one day, although they've been healing, they've been casting out demons, one day a man shows up and this man brings, him his, brings with him his son. And this son is possessed by, the Bible says, a demon. And so the disciples decide to do what they've always done. And as they go, they go to cast out the demon. And on this day, behold, behold, they try and nothing happens. And they find that all of a sudden they are powerless. You'll recall the story. Jesus is frustrated with the disciples. He says, oh, oh, men of little faith. And he says, you know, how long shall I put up with you? He says, bring the boy to me. And ultimately, Jesus heals the boy. Well, the disciples are perplexed over the fact that nothing happened when they did what they've always done. And so later on, they come to Jesus. And there in your outline, it says, then the disciples came. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say, notice he says, say to this mountain, not pray about the situation, but say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And you might want to underline, nothing will be impossible to you. And then he goes on, he says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, what's the problem? And Jesus says, here's the problem. The problem, guys, is your lack of faith. In most modern churches, if the boy would have shown up, prayed for, nothing happens, we would have concluded that it must be God's will for the man to live in this condition. Jesus reveals that it had nothing to do with God's will. It had everything to do with the faith in the lives of the believers because Jesus turns around and heals the boy. Jesus says, here's the reality. If you had faith, nothing 
would be impossible to you. Now, at one time they had faith. They were out casting out demons. They were healing. They were teaching. They were preaching. But on this day, they were empty. They were powerless. And here's what we learn from this. We learn that you and I as believers can describe our spiritual walk as having what we might call a faith bucket. That is, we have a bucket, a bucket of faith, but there's a hole in the bottom of the bucket. And that hole is constantly leaking out the faith. We see it in the life of the disciples. Jesus says, if you had faith, well, they had faith before, but they don't have it now, so here's what it means. Something must be going on that's causing that to leak out continuously to the point where they were empty. Every one of us has, spiritually speaking, a faith bucket. That faith bucket is continually emptying. So there are certain things, and Jesus told the disciples that there were certain things that they needed to do to fill their faith bucket. If you and I are to survive the trials that life is going to throw at us, we're going to have to fill our faith bucket. Now, now why is that so important? The disciples were faced with a situation that they needed to exercise some overcoming faith. But on that day, they were powerless. In our lives, and I'm going to say this is going to hurt some feelings, so put your seatbelt on, because the intention is not to hurt feelings. The, The intention is hopefully to bring some light so that we as believers can take the next step. It happens the same with us. We show up to church every three weeks or so, Right now, the average attendance in America is considered that you're, an, you're a regular churchgoer if you go to church once every six weeks. And, and so we show up to church every couple of weeks. We have our faith bucket somewhat filled, but then we take the next couple of weeks and we begin to fill that bucket as it's depleting with anything and everything that may be in keeping with what God would want, but many times contrary to what God wants. And so we go around as professing believers with very empty faith buckets. Then all of a sudden, a trial comes our way. And we want to stand and take a step and and exercise some overcoming faith. But like the disciples, because our faith bucket is empty, we find ourselves powerless in that situation. Does that make sense? And so I want to talk today about what we can do to keep our faith buckets full because those trials, trials are going to come. Now, as we do this, let me say one other thing. I always assume that when a trial comes my way that God has called me to a conquering faith unless he makes it very clear that he's called me to a survival faith or an enduring faith. But I assume first that he's called me to a conquering faith. So what do we need to do in order to keep our faith buckets full? Well, first of all, as we've looked at today, we need to have a decided heart. We need to ask God for wisdom. What is is the faith that you want me to exercise in this circumstance? But then number three, and you want to write this down, if I'm going to keep my faith bucket full, I need to spend time with God every day. I need to spend time with God daily. Go ahead and write that down. Some people call that a devotional time. Some people call it a quiet time, whatever you call it. But here's what I notice. That Jesus, who was the second person in the Trinity, God in the flesh, a man without sin, Jesus realized that if he was going to keep his faith bucket full, he needed to spend time with his heavenly Father on a daily basis. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says that early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. 
That's always impacted me because I look at Jesus and I go, you don't have a sin nature. you're, You're God in the flesh. You're the son of God. And yet you believe in order for you to accomplish your mission in life, you need to keep your faith bucket full by simply spending time with God. Now this is important because quite honestly, most professing believers do not have a daily time that they've set aside where they spend time with their heavenly father. Most professing believers do not have a time like that. And here, here's what, it, what it's like. It's like you and I deciding that we're going to play football seven days a week. Every day we're going to play football. And so we do that. But as we do that, we decide that we're only going to eat one day a week. Play football every day, but we're only going to eat one day a week. How do you think we're going to do? Spiritually speaking, that's what we're doing. If we're going to keep our faith bucket full, we need to have a time set aside every single day where we are spending time with our Heavenly Father. If you don't have that time on a daily basis, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that you start by scheduling 20 minutes every day, preferably at the beginning of your day, but your clock might not work like my clock works, so whatever's the best time for you, but schedule a time, 20 minutes to begin with, every day where you're going to spend time with your heavenly father, being in his word, spending that time praying. But I would suggest just reading your Bible as a start. Okay? Next, number four, as I'm doing that, I need to pray the promise, not the problem. I need to pray the promise, not the problem. God's promises are found in God's word. The Bible says this there in your outline. He says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Here's here's what we know. The Bible says that God's word is food for your spirit. As a baby takes in milk, the Bible likens it to you and I as believers taking in God's word. As a baby takes in milk, it causes the baby to grow. You and I take in God's word, it causes us to grow. We need to be doing this on a daily basis. And there's a benefit of doing this. Notice what it says there in your outline in the box. It says, great peace have those who love your law. The word law there is just simply the Old Testament word for word of God. But he says, great peace have those who love your law. David is saying, God is telling us that there is a correlation between the peace that we have from God, the steadfastness that we have, and between that and our love for his word. Somehow, some way, God says, if you love my word, it will bring about a supernatural peace in your life. Does that make sense? So here's what I do. I discover that God's promises are found in God's word. And what I do, for me, this is what works best for me, as I read through God's word, I come across his promises, and when I come across a promise that works, that speaks to me, that that kind of reveals something, and I think that's for me, I take it and I write it down on a three-by-five card. And part of my quiet time every single day is I simply take my cards, and I have uh, actually four stacks, and so I take one stack a day, and I read through them typically out loud. I've done this so many times. I've never tried to memorize these verses, but I've done them so many times, said them so many times, that they're just part of me. I just know them because I've just said them so many times. It wasn't like I said, I'm going to memorize this. I've just done it so many times. I've just, over time, I've memorized them. Now, so here's what I do. When I pray the promise, 
not the problem. I pray the promise because he already knows what the problem is. So I pray the promise. I say, Lord, your word tells me that you supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I don't pray the problem. As a believer, we need to come to the place where we're not telling God how big our problems are, but we need to be telling our problems how big our God is. And How do I do that? I simply pray the promise. What does the Bible say? Does that make sense? By the way, if you want, um, if you're curious about the promises and some great promises, send me an email and I'll send you in a Word document all the promises that that, uh, I use. So I pray the promise, not the problem. And then after that, I purpose to speak the promise, not the problem. The Bible says there in your outline, can two walk together unless they're agreed? If I'm going to walk with God, I need to agree with God. I agree with God when I say about my situation what it is that God says about my situation. That is, I have to say the same thing that God says. So if God says that he supplies all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, I can't walk around telling everybody about how I'm about to go under because it's not what he says. So I have to purpose to say the promise, not the problem. Does that make sense? Now here's how it works. There in your outline, Paul said it like this. Quoting from the Old Testament, he says the word, God's word, is near you, in your mouth, notice that's first, and in your heart, in your heart, that'll be second. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. He says God's word, you notice he says it's in your mouth first, you say that, and then ultimately he says and in your heart. It's got to be in your mouth before it's in your heart. Now, here's how it works. There in your outline, in the book of Hebrews, Paul wrote it like this. He says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise from the Bible, quoting from the Old Testament. So Paul says, because of that promise, so we may, what's the word say? Boldly pray. Is that what it says? Say, it's not even praying, it's saying. That we may boldly say, but what do we say? The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What is he saying? He's just simply saying Psalm 118, verse 6. God has promised, we respond by boldly saying what it is that God said. Now, the book of James is going to talk a lot about our tongue and how our words are literally the rudder of our life. We're going to look at that in James 3. But just look down in chapter 1 of James in verse 26. Notice what he says, verse 26. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his, what's it say? Tongue. He deceives his own heart. And this man's religion is worthless or useless. Here's what he's saying. Your real spiritual test is what's coming out of your mouth. He's not talking about saying dirty words. He's talking about speaking the promises of God in a faithful way. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Make sense so far? Okay, so I need to speak the promise. And then number six, to keep my faith bucket full... Um, I, need, I need to find a place of service. Now, before you check out on this, I want you to consider two verses. 
as far as keeping your faith bucket full and surviving a trial. Paul said it like this there in your outline. He says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now just stop right there. You've been a believer for some time. Opportunity of the flesh. Good thing, bad thing. Okay. Just the old sinful nature, the old things, the things that we go back to. He says, don't turn it into an opportunity for the flesh. So what's the antidote? What do I do? He says, but through love, what's he say? Serve one another. Here's what he's saying. The way that you safeguard against going back to the flesh, getting involved in the opportunities of the flesh as he talks about, and just that old sinful nature, part of the antidote is simply finding the place where you are actively serving one another. When he says one another, he's talking about other believers, not just people in general, but other believers. In that first century, the context was only in the local church. So here's what he's saying. If you want to have a bucket of faith that's full, you need to, and you want to survive a trial, you need to find your place of service in the context of a local believer. Because here's what we find. We find that people who come to church, but they don't serve, they never really tap in, and in a time of trial, for some reason, I can't explain why, you just notice that in a time of trial, they fall apart. But people who are serving, you notice that they don't get involved in certain things that would be called the flesh. And you also notice that in a time of trial, they have a stickability. Now, if you're not sold on that verse, and you say, I don't really buy that, look at the next verse. The next verse is Ephesians 4. You're probably very familiar with it. I, I had to cut a couple of words out just to get it on the outline. You can read it later. He says, he gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So as the pastor here of this church, I'm to equip the saints. What am I to equip the saints for? I'm to equip them for the, what's it say? Work of service. So part of my job description is to prepare you to actually do something, to find that place of service somewhere within the context of the body of believers. And so, so what does that service look like? It looks like to the building up of the body of Christ. So what you're doing as serving needs to have some type of purpose. Now, how long do we need to do that? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That hasn't happened yet. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. But then he says in verse 15, uh, verse 14, underline these three words, as a result. Now, this, this is the part that we miss. Bible scholars say that when he says as a result, as a result of what? As a result, it's as if Paul says, we equip the saints for the work of service, and then there's this big parentheses, till we all attain to the fullness of the faith, to the measure of the stature. But then he comes back to what he's saying, and he says, as a result, as a re- result of what? The saints serving, being equipped for the work of service. He says, as a result, and you underline that, what's the result of that? We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, underline that, that would be trials, and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That would be heresy. So here's what he's saying. In some way, whether overtly or covertly, whether right up front or just implied, he's attaching serving 
as a safeguard to going through trials, not being tossed here and there by waves, the trials of life. So he, he, he attaches that. Now, um, and you, you just notice that people as they come to church, when they serve, they, they seem to not be carried away by every trial. They're, they're, they're being built up. They're encouraged. So here's what I want to do. And it's why we harp on this every week. If this is your church home, you need to find your place of service. Is it because we need you? Well, maybe a little bit, but you need to be serving in the context of your local church. Not because I say it, but because Paul says this is, whether you embrace it directly or implied or loosely, it's a safeguard to making sure that you are able to navigate through the trials of life. Does that make sense? So you want to find your place of service, simply mark the box, place it in one of the offering boxes on the way out. Now, finally, number seven, if I'm going to keep my faith bucket full and I'm going to survive a trial, I need to actively seek out environments of fellowship. Paul said this. Paul said, not forsaking our own assembling together. That's believers getting together in church and and other places assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near paul says that when believers get together that there needs to be that there that there's the encouragement of your faith and he says but the habit of some is to not assemble together that is there are people who profess to be believers but coming to corporate worship, being with other believers is way down on their list of priorities. Paul says that's not a good thing. We need to come together because first of all, we need to be encouraged in our faith, but we also need to be used to be encouraging others in their faith. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, interesting, Charles Tremendous Jones, many of you might have heard of him, he used to say that you will be where you are today in five years except for the books you read and the people you associate with. Now, Paul would say it like this. Paul would say, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's right there in your outline. Everybody saw it, right? Why is that important? As the pastor, probably every pastor in America, every week, Every single week, I get an email, a telephone, a telephone call, a letter from someone who was a believer, grew up as a believer, but at some point decided for whatever reason to walk away from the assembling of believers getting together, the assembling of ourselves together. They walked away from church. They, they walked away from fellowship. Here's what happens. In every case, emails, letters, telephone calls, it always goes like this. I walked away at some point, stopped getting together with other believers, didn't make it a priority. I became like those I started hanging out with. Now I find myself in the biggest trial of my life and I'm trapped. What do I do? The safeguard against that is simply to make sure that I'm actively choosing to find myself in a place where I am assembling, seeking out environments of fellowship. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, there's two opportunities. Number one is church. If, if uh, Calvary is your church, then you need to be at church very regularly. How regular? Well, how about every seven days? That's how regular you need to be at church. If you're a parent, 
and you're casual about your church attendance, just know that you're probably going to raise children who are going to be even more casual about placing God first as far as coming to church. It's just how it's going to be. The second opportunity for you is to join a growth group. Now, the reason the growth group is great is it's a smaller environment, an opportunity to study, an opportunity to gather together with other believers to be encouraged in your faith. Those are two opportunities. Now, in all of these things that we've looked at today, those are the things very basic that you need to do if you're going to have a faith bucket that's full. But wouldn't you agree that none of these things happen by themselves? That they all come from a decision that needs to be made in the life of the believer. And until that decision's made, nothing else is really going to change. Would you agree? And so today, no big finish, just very simply, if that's you today, if your faith bucket is going to be full for the times when the trials come, and they will come, these are the decisions that you have to make. You absolutely. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as, as uh, we've wrapped this up today, this, this whole concept of trials and that we're going to go through them and just the realities of life. Father, here's what I ask. I pray, God, that you would help us to make decisions that would help us to keep our faith bucket full because we know, Lord, that even though things might be wonderful right now, there's going to come a day when the sun is going to rise with its scorching wind And some of the things that look so great right now are going to be withered going into a great trial. And yet, Lord, Father, I just sense that we need to make a decision in our life. As your word is laid out, there are those of us who need to take that step and stop being casual in our relationship with you. And so I pray, God, that today that your word, your spirit has spoken into our lives and that you are taking us to that place of that greater commitment. Be with us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.